The Experience of Hannah Prime by Alice Brown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Experience of Hannah Prime. Tiverton Hollow had occasionally an evening meeting. This came about naturally when religious zeal burned high, or when the congregation felt with some uneasiness that it had remained too long aloof from spiritual things. Tonight the schoolhouse had been designated for an assembling place, and the neighborhood trooped thither, animated by an excited importance, and doing justice to the greatness of the occasion by dressing up. Farmers had laid aside their ordinary mood, with overalls and jumpers, and donned an uncomfortable solemnity, an enforced attitude of theological reflection, with their stocks. Wives had urged their patient fingers into cotton gloves, and in cashmere shawls and bonnets, retrimmed with reference to this year's style, pressed into the uncomfortable chairs and folded their hands upon the desks before them, in a sweet seriousness not unmingled with the desire of thriftily completing a duty no less exigent than pickle-making or the work of spring and fall. Last came the boys, clattering with awkward haste over the dusty floor which had known the touch of their bare feet on other days. They looked about the room with some awe and a puzzled acceptance of its being the same, yet not the same. It was their own. There were the maps of North and South America, the yellowed evergreens, relic of last day, still festooned the windows, and an intricate sum, there explained to the uncomprehending admiration of the village fathers, still adorned the blackboard. Yet the room had strangely transformed itself into an alien temple, invaded by theology and the breath of an unknown world. But those sobered, they were not cast down, for the occasion was enlivened, in their case, by a heaven-defying profligacy of intent. Every one of them knew that Sammy Forbes had in his pocket a pack of cards, which he meant to drop, by wicked but careless design, just when Deacon Pitts led in prayer, and that Tom Drake was master of a concealed pea-shooter, which he had sworn, with all the asseverations held sacred by boys, to use at some dramatic moment. All the band were aware that neither of these daring deeds would be done. The prospective actors themselves knew it, but it was a darling joy to contemplate the remote possibility thereof. Deacon Pitts opened the meeting, reminding his neighbors how precious a privilege it is for two or three to be gathered together. His companion had not been able to come. The entire neighborhood knew that Mrs. Pitts had been laid low by an attack of erysipelas, and that she was, at the moment, in a dark bedroom at home, helpless under elder blow. She lays there on a bed of pain, said the deacon, but she says to me, you go. Better the house of mourning than the house of feasting, she says. Oh, my friends, what can be more blessed than the counsel of an aged and feeble companion? The deacon sat down, and Tom Drake, his finger on the pea-shooter, assured himself in acute mental triumph that he had almost done it that time. Then followed certain incidents eminently pleasing to the boys. To the unbounded relief, Sarah Frances Giles rose to speak, weeping as she began. She always wept at prayer meeting, though at the very moment of asserting her joy that she cherished a hope and her gratitude that she was so nearly at an end of this earthly pilgrimage and ready to take her stand on the sea of glass mingled with fire. The boys reveled in her testimony. They were in a state of bitter uneasiness before she rose and gnawed with a consuming impatience until she began to cry. Then they wondered if she could possibly leave out the sea of glass, and when it duly came, they gave a sigh of satiated bliss and sank into acquiescence in whatever might happen.
This was a rich occasion to their souls, for Silas Marden, who was seldom moved by the spirit, fell upon his knees to pray, but at the same unlucky instant his sister-in-law, for whom he cherished an unbounded scorn, rose, being nigh-eyed and ignorant of his priority, and began to speak. For a moment the two held on together, neck and neck, as the happy boys afterwards remembered, and then Silas got up, dusted his knees, and sat down, not to rise again, at any spiritual call. And a madder man you never see, cried all the hollow next day, in shocked but gleeful memory. Taking it all in all, the meeting had thus far mirrored others of its class. If the droning experiences were devoid of all human passion, it was chiefly because they had to be expressed in the phrases of strict theological usage. There was an unspoken agreement that feelings of this sort should be described in a certain way. They were not the affairs of the hearth and market, they were matters pertaining to that awful entity called the soul, and must be dressed in the fine linen which she had herself elected to wear. Suddenly, in a wearisome pause, when minds had begun to stray toward the hayfield and Tamar's churning, the door was pushed open, and the widow Prime walked in. She was quite unused to seeking her kind, and the little assembly at once awoke, under the stimulus of surprise. They knew quite well where she had been walking, to suddenly jail, to visit her only son lying there for the third time, not, as usual, for drunkenness, but for housebreaking. She was a wiry woman, a mass of muscles animated by an eager energy. Her very hands seemed knotted with clenching themselves in nervous spasms. Her eyes were black, seeking, and passionate, and her face had been scored by fine wrinkles, the marks of anxiety and grief. Her chocolate calico was very clean, and a palm-leaf shawl and black bonnet were decent in their poverty. The vague excitement created by her coming continued in a rustling like that of leaves. The troubles of Hannah Prime's life had been very bitter, so bitter that she had, as Deacon Pitts once said, after undertaking her conversion, turned from me in the house of God. A quickening thought sprang up now in the little assembly that she was under conviction, and that it had become the present duty of every professor to lead her to the throne of grace. This was an exigency for which none were prepared. At so strenuous a challenge, the old conventional ways of speech fell down and collapsed before them, like creatures filled with air. Who should minister to one set outside their own comfortable lives by bitter sorrow and wounded pride? What could they offer a woman who had, in one way or another, sworn to curse God and die? It was Deacon Pitts who spoke, but in a tone hushed to the key of the unexpected. Has any one an experience to offer? Will any brother or sister lead in prayer? The silence was growing into a thing to be recognized and conquered, when, to the wonder of her neighbors, Hannah Prime herself rose. She looked slowly about the room, gazing into every face as if to challenge an honest understanding. Then she began speaking in a low voice, thrilled by an emotion not yet explained. Unused to expressing herself in public, she seemed to be feeling her way. The silence, pride, endurance, which had been her armor for many years, were no longer apparent. She had thrown down all her defenses with a grave composure, as if life suddenly summoned her to higher issues. I don't know's I got an experience to offer, she said. I don't know's it's religion. I don't know what is. Maybe you'd say it don't belong to a meeting. When I come by and see all sitting here, it come over me I'd like to tell somebody.
Two weeks ago I was most crazy. She paused of necessity, for something broke in her voice. That's the afternoon Jim was took, whispered a woman to a neighbor, and a prime went on. I'd just as soon tell it now. I can tell y'all together what I couldn't say to one on ye alone. And if anybody speaks to me about it afterwards, I wish they hadn't. I was all by myself in the house. I sat down in my clock room about three in the afternoon. There I sat. I didn't get no supper. I couldn't. I sat there and I heard the clock tick. By and by it struck seven and that waked me up. I thought I'd gone crazy. The figures on the wallpaper provoked me most to death. And that red and white tidy I made the winter I was laid up seemed to be talking out loud. I got up and run outdoor just as fast as I could go. I run out behind the house and down the cart path to that pile of rocks that overlooks the lake. And there I got out of breath and dropped down on a big rock. And there I sat just as still as I'd been sitting when I was in the house. Here a little girl stirred in her seat and her mother leaned forward and shook her with alarming energy. I never was so hard with Mary Elder Four, she explained the next day, but I was as nervous as a witch. I thought if I heard a pin drop I should scream. I don't know how long I sat there, went on Hannah Prime, but by and by it begun to come over me how still the lake was. Twas like glass, and way over where it runs in tween them islands, it burnt like fire. Then I looked up a little further to see what kind of a sky there was. Twas light green with clouds in it, all fire, and it begun to seem to me as if it was a kind of land and water up there, like on, only not solid. I sat there and looked at it, and I picked out islands and marshlands and pints running out into the yellow-green sea, and everything grew stiller and stiller. The loon struck up down on the lake with that kind of a lonesome whiner, but that only made the rest of it seem quieter. And it begun to grow dark all round me, I don't know as I ever noticed before just how the dark comes. It sifted down like snow, only couldn't see it. Well, I sat there, and I tried to keep stiller and stiller like everything else. Seemed as if I must. And pretty soon, I knew something was walking towards me over the lot. I kept my eyes on the sky, for I knew it would break something if I turned my head, and I felt as if I couldn't bear to. And it come walking, walking without taking any steps or making any noise, till it come right upside of me and stood still. I didn't turn round. I knew I mustn't. I don't know whether it touched me. I don't know whether it said anything. But I know it made me a new creature. I knew then I shouldn't be afraid of things no more. No, sorry. I found out was all right. I'm glad to be alive, I said. I'm thankful. Seemed to me I've been dead for the last twenty years. I'd come alive. So I sat there and held my breath for fear it would go. I don't know how long, but the moon rose up over my left shoulder and the sky began to fade. And then it come over me. Twas going. I knew twas terrible tender of me and sorry and loving, and so I said, don't you mind, I won't forget. And then it went, but that broke something, and I turned and see my own shadow on the grass, and I thought I'd see another side of it. 
Somehow that scared me, and I jumped up and whipped it home without looking behind me. Now that's my experience, said Hannah Prime, looking her neighbors again in the face with dauntless eyes. I don't know what twas, but it's going to last. I ain't afraid no more, and I ain't going to be. There ain't nothing to worry about. Everything's bigger than we think. She folded her shawl more closely about her and moved toward the door. There she again turned to her neighbors. Good night, she said, and was gone. They sat quite still until the tread of her feet had ceased its beating on the dusty road. Then, by one consent, they rose and moved slowly out. There was no prayer that night, and Lord Dismiss Us was not sung. End of the Experience of Hannah Prime by Alice Brown This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.